I do trust and hope that it's your desire as well to live for Him. Well, it's easy to sing a song. It's another thing to mean what you're saying and believe what you're saying. It's my desire to live for Jesus. And boy, I trust that's the case. Boy, I tell you what, wouldn't that solve a multitude of problems, not just in our lives, but amongst each other? What a blessing that would be. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Our desire. We're going to talk a little bit about that today, I guess. I mean, you can't help it with you get to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And so we've been dealing, of course, with our new theme for the year. 
your reasonable service. And um, we've been addressing a number of issues along the way. This first Sunday night of the year, we unveiled our theme and we gave an overview of the passage. And then last week, of course, we talked about the goodness of God in relationship to His wonderful and marvelous mercy. Today, we're going to talk about the call of the believer. And we're going to look at that just a little bit. So, over in the book of Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, we're just going to read that first verse. It says, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Again, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, last week we focused again on that first phrase. And we noted again, as I said, the goodness of God in relationship, of course, to the mercies that he extends and to the grace that he's bestowed. And the apostle says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. I mean, we noted that Paul's letter had defined and described the mercies of God. For 11 chapters, he has, in a sense at least, told us of the magnificent work of God in our lives. We noted that his letter, again, defined that. It described that. So, as we looked at that, we then went back into the book of Romans and we learned that both Jew and Gentile are sinners and as such, they're worthy of the greatest wrath and punishment. We said, uh, as a result of the fact that we're sinners, as a result of the fact that we're worthy of that condemnation, we are in a hopeless state and we have no real defense We are totally dependent for safety on the mercy and compassion of another. And that other is Jesus Christ Himself. We are sinners. We're sinners deserving the greatest of all punishment. And yet, God has extended His marvelous mercy to you and I. What a blessing that is. What an amazing truth that is. When I deserved hell the most, God was as good as He could get. God, we said, was merciful even to the worst offender, to the greatest sinner, the most vile lawbreaker. And that means that even though he knows of our guilt, he doesn't always issue us the punishment that we deserve. That's mercy. As a matter of fact, not only does he not give us what we do deserve, but on the other hand, he gives us what we don't deserve. See, on one hand, we have mercy. On the other hand, we have grace. And for that, we are greatly Thankful. He goes on to express that marvelous mercy again. Boy, I'll tell you what, chapters 1 through 8 and then 9 through 11, we find him expressing this idea of justification, our sanctification, our glorification. We're reminded of our new life and new nature, that new home, the new family, the new outlook, the new hope, the new future, that new direction that's ours in Christ Jesus. And we understand That without the marvelous mercy of God, none of it would be possible. Matter of fact, there wouldn't be no Christ in us. There'd be no hope of heaven. There'd be no salvation without the mercy of God. And to top it all off, His mercy has paved the way for more than a mere sonship. It's opened the door to airship. 
I mean, we're not merely sons now, but we're joint heirs, the Bible says, entitled to the wealth and possessions of God our Father. What an inheritance. What mercy. And so now, finally, he confronts us with an appeal. He appeals to you and I to present our bodies a living sacrifice. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And this morning, that's the portion of Scripture that you present your bodies a living sacrifice that I want to present or share this morning. That's the portion. And so, without further ado, I want to have a word of prayer and then we'll go ahead and continue in our series as we consider this thought, the call of the believer today. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we come to you. And again, it is our great privilege to gather in your house. And Lord, you know in my own heart, I am so insufficient, so unable to, Father, accomplish this mission that you've given me this morning behind this sacred desk, except you fill me with your Holy Ghost. Uh, We will have wasted time today, your time, our time. Father, every time we gather at Community Baptist Temple, it needs to be a time of not only refreshing, but instruction and inspiration and empowering. Father, may we be truly quick to hear from you and then to apply the truths that you share with us from your blessed book. Truthfully, Lord, I have nothing to share. But yet, Lord, remove all my words and the word of God stands alone. And it is the authority. And so, Lord, I'm just a mere tool in your hand today. Oh, God, may you be glorified in what's said and done. And may every listening ear be as equally anointed. And Lord, may we leave here different for having come. Be glorified now in our lives, Lord. We desperately need you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Up to this point, Paul has been dealing with theology. Or what some might call doctrine. Doctrine or theology is often misunderstood to mean boring, technical, intellectual, impractical even. But nothing could be farther from the truth. Bible doctrine is practical. Bible doctrine is meant to be accompanied by action. Honestly, I grow a little weary with the idea that somehow, well, that's theology, that's doctrine, and that's boring, and those are all the do's and the don'ts, but we live in a real world, and it's got to be practical. You know, well, let me tell you something. Doctrine is practical, because without doctrine, there's no real foundation to build your life on. There's no foundation to build mine on. Nothing is more practical than theology. And it is the theology that makes Romans 12 through 16 significant and important. Theology is important. See, Paul has spent 11 chapters and then he comes to chapter 12 where he begins to begins to be very practical, if you will. I understand we say, well, now he laid out the theology, he laid out the doctrine, and now he's going to put the application in place. And there's truth to that, but neither one stands alone. They go together. And so we have early on in chapters 1 through 11, very practical doctrine, if you will, or so much, I guess, theology. And he's outlining and he's describing to us our state and our standing and all the things that go on. And yet, in chapter 12, he kind of turns a little bit and says, now let's make the application to what we've just learned. 
Because without application, my friend, your doctrine, your theology is useless. It means absolutely nothing. And so does mine. We see it all the time in churches across America. Let's be practical. Let's be practical. Let's be practical. Let's be practical. But there's no doctrine. But may I say there's also, on the other hand, the other side of that. Pushing the, pushing the, the, the doctrine, if you will. And then making no application to it. Well, how do I apply that truth? How do I make that work? How is that applied in my life? That's important too. So balance is the key, is it not? As a result, we're not only to preach doctrine, but we're to preach application of the doctrine. We're not to preach only application of doctrine, but preach doctrine as well. So it's a balance. And now Paul appeals to the practical. We've been exposed to the doctrine of the Christian life, but now we're going to be introduced to the reality or the practical application of the Christian life. So how does Paul begin this section? It begins with an altar. It begins with a practical. How does he begin the practical side of this? He's going to reveal to us the doctrine and theology, how it's applied to our life, how it's going to be treated in our life, how we're going to experience it in our day-to-day walk in life. And so how does he begin it? He begins it on an altar. It starts right at an altar. It's practical. The altar is not subliminal. The altar is not some kind of hopeful Goal in the Christian life, it is the very beginning of practical theology and practical application. It's where it all begins for the believer. Now notice I said believer, you're already saved, I trust. So if you are, then the next step is an altar. So, it begins at an altar. It's a call to an altar. And therefore, we see the call of the believer here tonight, this morning. So, the call of the believer. What about that call? I want to give you three basic thoughts today and we're done. First of all, it's a personal call. It's a personal call. Notice again in the passage, he says... I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye, that ye, that ye present yourself. That ye present yourself. Oh, I know it's easy to look to my neighbor and say, God wants you to lay it on and on. It's easy to look at my husband or wife and say, boy, I'll tell you what, their life isn't adding up and it's not exactly what it ought to be. And they need to get on that altar today. Oh, that's easy. But this isn't what the call of God's about in your life or in mine. The call of God is specific. It is direct. It is literally personal. It's you that He wants on that altar. Look in Galatians chapter 1, if you would please, verse 3 through 4. Notice what transpires and takes place. We addressed this in our Wednesday night program, our, our, our series on the unsaved world. Notice what it says here in the passage in Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. He says, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father. 
I, I want to stop right there. I'm going to tell you what. What I found lately is when I read the Bible and I begin to, to look at it, I can't go past a word or two anymore. It's starting to get to me. I used to be able to go through chapters and go, wow, is there one thing in there that really stands out? Now I can't even get through that first statement. Grace be to you. Grace be to you. And peace. Grace be to you and peace. Where's it coming from? From God the Father. You don't have grace, you don't have peace. It's because you're not allowing God to give it to you because He's already extended it. Isn't that interesting? You miserable this morning? It's your fault. You, you want to be there, obviously. And if you don't want to be there, then you need to figure out how not to be there. And the Bible's going to give you the answer here real soon. It's an altar. Because God's going, I'm extending grace to you. I'm extending mercy to you. I'm extending a peace to you. Here it is. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Watch this. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. It is God's will. It is God's will. It is God's will that you be delivered from this present evil world. God doesn't want you remaining in the present evil world. God wants to call you out of that. God wants to deliver you out of that world. And he wants to deliver me too. And may I say, it's not enough to be delivered out of it just in salvation, although that is definitely what's being referred to here. But the fact is, is that you can't go back into the slot and the muck and the mire and think you're going to enjoy the peace of God and you're going to enjoy the power of God and you're going to have the presence of God in your life. It's impossible. He may be living in you, but he's not allowed to have his way in you. So not only are we called out of this present evil world, though, it's important to realize this, that we are called to him as well. So I'm, I'm called out of the world, if you will. I'm delivered out of the world. But I'm not just to stand here in nothingness and all this vastness and try to navigate my way through this life. No, I'm called unto him. I'm going, I'm supposed to be drawn to him. I'm to be separated unto him. I'm standing next to him. I'm sitting next to him. Our salvation isn't just an event that separates us from the world then. An, an event that provides us an escape from the consequences of sin. That's not what salvation's all about. In the end, let me tell you something, there's a lot more to it. It's an event that attaches us to Christ and should naturally produce life-altering changes. We present ourselves. It's an individual presentation. You don't put your wife on the altar. You don't put your son on the altar. You don't put anyone there. You put yourself there. Each believer has to come to the conclusion that presenting themselves to the one who extended his mercy and grace to them is reasonable. It's reasonable. He's not asking too much of me. See, the Paul, Paul uses this term, present. It's an interesting term. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, that, that, that word presents, I, like I said, interesting. I, it suggests something so definite, so definitive, that it marks a transition in the life. In your life. In mine. 
For instance, let's say that a man, he stands before a minister. And he stands there with a young lady by his side. The minister, of course, is going to go ahead and uh, give the vows or recite the vow and then say, all right, you've heard the vow. What is your answer? And he says, I will. She says, I will, hopefully. When those two little words, I will, are spoken, it represents not only an immediate change, of course, or direction in their lives, but a lifelong commitment. I mean, the ramifications of those two little words is ongoing, and it is life-altering. It's like the person who enrolls in the United States Army. And when they stand there and say, I do, in a sense then everything in their life afterwards comes under the jurisdiction of the United States, of the President of the United States, and those other leaders that are associated with the armed services. It changes their whole life. They go up there and they take that oath, and they give their, they present themselves into the United States military. Let me tell you something. Their life's not their own anymore. They go where they're told to go. They do what they're told to do. They're under the leadership and direction of another See, the word present is extremely interesting, as I said. Some are very quick in some commentaries to point out the idea that, well, the Greek word has been translated yield. Or, or in some cases, it's been translated surrender. And you know what? I get it. I, I do. I get it. And I'm not very, I'm rarely critical of the, the definition of words. But the fact is, is that there's something about this word present that's a little bit different than yielding or surrendering. I don't know about you, but there's a tinge of hesitation if I have to surrender. For instance, if I'm going to surrender, say, in a battle situation, i got to run up a white flag. I'm telling you, I don't want to put that white flag up, but I guess I just have to. Surrender has this feeling of, 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 of just hesitation, if you will. Of reluctance, if you will. And so does the word yield. I mean, you think about it for a second. I love to present a gift to someone. But I'm not always so anxious to surrender a chicken nugget or yield an Oreo cookie. You know, let's be honest. Now, I'm going to present this to you. It's different. I go to my wife and, you know, when I remember our anniversary by some amazing miracle... And all of a sudden, I go out and I buy her some jewelry. I wrap it up in a beautiful little box. I'd probably ask someone else to wrap it. And it looks so pretty. She takes it and, 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 and I get with her and, and we're in the intimacy of our home or maybe at a restaurant. And I, I take it out in this, this beautiful, say, say some type of jewelry. I don't know, earrings or a necklace or something or a nice ring. And I hold it out in the box and I say, I want to surrender this to you. She's like, what? That's kind of strange. I want to yield this to you. What are you talking about? She'd look at me kind of weird, you know, like, what's going on here? 
Listen, I mean, there is no, there, there's, there's no hesitancy here at all. There's no reluctance a bit. Man, I want you to have this. It's my honor. It's my privilege to give you this. I didn't go out there going, oh, I gotta buy a gift. And if I did, she'll probably know that. And I'm going to tell you something. The Bible says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present, that ye present yourselves. Not with any reluctance. I mean, we've just gotten through eight and then eleven chapters of the book of Romans that expresses His mercy and His goodness to us. He's not asking us reluctantly to lay ourselves on an altar. He's not begging us to do something without our real, complete, and total approval here. It's our privilege and our great privilege to be or to give our bodies to the Lord. Not only that, not only is it, is it a personal call, but it is a practical call. It's practical. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. Your bodies. I mean, what does the Scripture mean? What, what does the text imply here? Present your bodies. Well, as we think about it, our bodies really are, are really our being in relationship to the world in which we live. We talk about the five senses and how they connect us to the world we live in. The truth is, is that as a believer, if all you had was a brain, and most of us are struggling with that, but if all we had was a brain and it was on a post somewhere and it just sat there and it was connected to a computer in a sense, and the only thing we could do is maybe find out what the brain is thinking, if you will, let me tell you, it'd be pretty useless to God. If it couldn't communicate with the world, if it couldn't uh, express itself to the world, if it was just a brain, you said, well, there's Mark O'Donnell right there. See that brain? And it's about as big as a peanut. But you put a body around that brain and all of a sudden that body can reach out to the world. That body in a very practical way can impact and influence others. I mean, there is a truth to the fact that we first die to self in the sense that it's that inward man. We have to lay ourselves on that altar, you know, in, in doctrinally speaking, theoretically speaking, that it's really a spiritual element. But may I say something to you today? God doesn't want just your spirit in that sense. He wants your body. Don't tell me it's enough to love God without showing that love. Don't go there. I'm telling you there's too much Bible to prove otherwise. If you love me... Keep my commandments. See, he wants your body on the altar. It's very practical. Very practical. Look, if you would, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. First Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. There in the passage, Paul's speaking, of course, to the Corinthians. And he says, what? Know ye not that your body, your body, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? Which you have of God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. What, what is the implication there? You're bought with a price. What's that going back to? 
<clears throat> your body. Your body has been paid for too. You know you're going to get a new body one day? Do you realize that that body that you now sit in, that you do what you do with, is not yours to do with as you please? That body is His property now? Well, He's got my spirit and He's got my heart. He ought to have your body according to the Word of God. How quick we are to withhold the body. 2 Corinthians 5, 4 says, For what are, uh, for we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for the, that we sh- would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mor- mortality might be swallowed up of life. Again, in this tabernacle do we groan. In 2 Peter 1, 13-14, Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Paul's saying this, this body is a tabernacle. Well, it houses the Holy Ghost, first of all. And it is the, the ability that we have. It's the opportunity that God gives us to reach out and literally touch someone. And God is asking us to present our bodies, our house, that He may have control over us. I mean, if we're to think that our body is a house, and that's what the Bible really is implying, it gives us that picture, then as we look at our life, consider our life, in a sense, a house. And giving God, then, the keys to the house. I mean, does He have the key to the dining room in your life? You say, what do you mean? Are you eating what honors God and pleases the Lord? Oh, I know, we don't, we don't want to talk about that. I mean, we are fundamental, independent, Bible-believing, King James, chicken-eating Baptists. Fried chicken-eating. Deep-fried. As deep as it can go. But honestly, does not God have a right? This is really His body now. Think about how we mistreat our bodies at times. Do we give him the key even to the kitchen? Let me ask you, I wonder, do you eat under the direction of the Holy Spirit? <laughs> what about this? Have you given him the recreation room? The key to the recreation room? I mean, the things that you do in the recreation room, are they things that please God? Are the things that you watch and listen to honoring Christ? And by the way, you can't watch them without the body. You can't listen to them without the body. So he asked for our bodies. Why? Because he wants to con- the control over them. God wants to control your body. He doesn't want to give it to you. You say, well, I want to control my body. Exactly. And that's what you did in this world. That's what you did before you were saved. That's how you lived and how you acted and how you went about your daily life is doing whatever pleased you and whatever met your need and whatever you thought was most important in your life. And that's how I live too. But wait a second. He bought us with a price. And he's asking, lay your body on that altar. Present your body a living sacrifice. Put it on that altar and let me have control of that body. See how practical it is? Oh, it's, listen, it's no problem to come and sit in a service like this and go, 
you know, that's the spiritual food and that's spiritually sound and that's spiritually nourishing and that's spiritually empowering and that's spiritually, and that's spiritually, and that's, no, it's practical. Doesn't do any good if you walk out the door and don't apply it practically. And you know how you apply every single doctrine in the Bible, really? Bodily. I, I get it. I, I know there's some things that we'd say, well, how you think isn't your body. Well, it is. It's your brain. It's your body. Okay, take your brain out and see how good your body works. Some of, you wouldn't even notice a difference if they took mine out. But the fact is, is that, is that the point being is it's still our bodies. And it's that we've got to yield it, whether it's our mind, whether it's our legs, our feet, whether it's our hands. Someone says, man, I lost an arm in war. That's right. Well, God permitted maybe you to lose an arm. But let me tell you, you've still got a lot of body left. Won't you give what's left to God? He obviously felt that you could serve Him without one arm. And I'm going to tell you something. I don't care if you have one arm, if you have zero arms and zero legs. I'll tell you what. That body is, your body's no good if you've got all the parts and you're not laying it on that altar to God. You'd be better off to lose both legs and both arms and put that body on that altar. And God could use you and you could glorify Him. You are useless of no value to God if you're not willing to lay it on the altar. Because He has no control of you. No control of me. What do you want out of your Christian life? Really, what are you sat- are you satisfied with this mundane, go through the motions, I'm living for Jesus and I'm miserable? Is that good enough? Not me. I don't want it. There are times I, I start to get in a bad way about things and I start to think a little bit critical and I get a little negative and I find myself getting a little, little bit frustrated with things and I realize something. I jumped off the altar. I got to present myself again. What about your library? Are the things that you read pleasing to Him? It's a very unreasonable thing. Listen to me now. This is important. It's a very unreasonable thing that we often do. To give Him our spirits, but to give our body to the service of that which opposes Him. Isn't that crazy? You got my spirit, but I'm going to take my body and do things that oppose you. I'm not just talking about immorality here. A tongue's a part of the body, too. Many of us find that it's often the case in our lives, if we're honest with the Lord. I mean, we've given our spirits and our souls to the Lord God, but we've given our bodies to others. It's alarming, isn't it? But it's true so many times. Not only is it, as we said already and noted, personal, a personal call, a practical call. May I say it's a profitable call? It's a profitable call. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Living sacrifice. That word living is interesting to me. Now, he says living sacrifice. And in so doing, he is contrasting, if you will, 
this sacrifice, the one he's, that the Lord's asking for in the New Testament, with the dead sacrifices of the Old Testament. Do you realize that an animal that got on the altar never got off on its own strength and power? It was a dead sacrifice. He wants us to be living sacrifices. Do you realize something important too? Is that there never was a voluntary offering in the Old Testament. Now I'm talking about I'm talking about the animals and those that were offered for sin and for the different types of offerings that were lived. There's not one pigeon. There's not one goat. There's not one bullock. There's not one lamb that said, me next, please. Me next. They didn't volunteer for that. You found them and picked them up. You threw them on the altar. After being instructed as to the wonderful, magnificent mercy of God, we are then beseeched to present our bodies a living sacrifice. What a privilege it is to present our bodies to God. It's a privilege. An even more amazing thing, it's an even more amazing thing that it's an all-win situation. You don't lose when you do this. I don't lose when I do this. Again, he's saying you're a living sacrifice. You're placing your body on the altar, but you're going to get up and live for God, allowing the Holy Spirit to have control of your life. And you will be the benefactor of that. And so will everyone else around you. See, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Take your Bible if you would. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. The fact is, is that you and I really don't start living till we present ourselves... Upon that altar. You don't really live yet. And I can't, I'm not really living until I do this. Now we can try to, to convince ourselves that we're living. But we can't imagine what it would be like. Because we've never been there. What, it would, what, li, what real living is. In Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you hath he quickened. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 1, chapter 2, I'm sorry. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved notice the deadness in verse 1 there's deadness who were dead in trespasses and sins see sin always brings what? death death Notice the dreadful course that we were on. He says, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. And he, Satan has a course and Satan has a, a road for you to travel. And he says, in those days, that's the course you were on. What a dreadful path. 
What a dreadful course. But also in verse 3, note the deadly desire. Among whom also we had, we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. The deadness, the dreadful course, the deadly desires. That's what sin is to you and I. And Paul the Apostle says, I want you to hear about the mercy of God in your life. And for 11 chapters, he opens up his heart and his mind and he takes from heaven what God gives him and pens it on a note and sends it over to the Romans and says, here's the mercy of God. Look how good he's been to you. As a result, therefore, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. I want you to know, he's saying, that... All of that in the past brings heartache. All of that in the past brings sorrow. All of that in the past brings confusion. All of that in the past is negative. Why would you want to go back to it? What a privilege you now have. How profitable laying yourself on the altar is. Presenting your bodies a living sacrifice frees you from this deadness and frees you from this dreadful course and frees you from the deadly desires that will sink you. And although you're saved today, And of course, there's truth in the fact that you have been already delivered out and you've already had victory in your life in that regard. May I say, it doesn't fix the body problem. And it's not enough to just be saved inside. There ought to be some sanctification taking place. And that body ought to be placed on that altar. You deserve it, God. I owe it to you. You've done everything for me. I don't want it anymore. I want you. And when I get him, I get everything else. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, all these things will be added unto you. What's he say over in the book of Galatians? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. See, the body houses the Holy Ghost. And there can be no victory in a believer's life without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And He must be free to move and to prompt. He must have both access and authority over the body. And when the Spirit is in control, then we are truly living. Love. Joy. Peace. i got a feeling that's what you want in your life. Because that's what I want in mine. But that doesn't happen until we present our bodies a living sacrifice. That's why I with confidence can say that calling is profitable. So, as we conclude, it's your choice.
when it's all said and done, the only reason you'll be miserable in your Christian faith, the only reason you'll be unfulfilled, unsatisfied in your walk with Christ, the only reason why circumstance and situation will continue to run you down and get victory over your emotions is because you have not presented your bodies. The only reason that Mark O'Donnell will struggle day to day, not enjoying the many blessings God promised from the Word of God, is because he chooses not to present himself on the altar, his body on the altar. I'm not saying everything's perfect once you do this. He hath begun a good work in you and will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. But it begins at an altar. You place your body there and you will be surprised. You will be amazed how much it makes a difference in your life. Your perspective is different. Your outlook is different. You handle things differently when you know He's in charge and in control. And it's not you taking the bull by the horns. Will you present yourself a living sacrifice this morning? I mean, will you permit the God of all mercy to fill you with His Spirit and endue you with the love, the joy, and the peace that He promises? Will you choose the pathway that leads to life, a life that is holy and acceptable unto God? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, I'm coming to you with all the goodness of God and saying, see it? Do you recognize it? Put your finger on it now. Name it. It's not just a figment of your imagination. You have been justified. You are being sanctified. You will be glorified. All of these things are not just a figment of imagination. They are real. And God has done something supernatural in your life. He's regenerated you. He has transformed you. He has changed you. And He says now that He's done all of that for you, won't you unhesitantly, without reservation, not simply run up a white flag and go, fine. All right, I'll give you my body. But say, no, I present my body a living sacrifice. It's my reasonable service. Father, we come to you.